Straw Hut Media. People have been terrified by the delights of a horror film since the late 1800s, during the earliest stages of motion picture film. Since its creation, horror has developed into more than just a genre. It's a space to face our collective fears and explore the unknown. We're drawn to characters like Dracula or Freddy Krueger because they stand out from what is familiar. Otherness is a popular theme within horror films, especially for the LGBTQ community makes a lot of sense because horror by definition is a genre of otherness and who understands otherness better than queer people. Today, we chat with Michael Verratti and Brendan Haley, two filmmakers with a special admiration for the genre of horror. It's not a world that I ever thought existed before and was not raised to believe was a, a community uh, of people and I've grown to love it. I've grown to really adopt it as my own. They'll walk us through the queer themes in some of our favorite classic scary movies, like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, what otherness means in cinema, and how queer horror is still evolving today. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. Hi, I'm Michael Verratti. I'm a filmmaker and writer and host, and queer horror has actually been quite a part of my journey uh, for a, a number of years now. And uh, it's very tied into my, my identity and my queer identity, and it has been, I think, since the beginning. Michael's obsession with horror began when he would binge watch Late Night Cable. And uh, there was a show at the end of the 80s and early 90s called USA Up All Night. And uh, I first started watching USA Up All Night because of a double feature they did of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And I was deeply fascinated by these titles and I begged my mom to let me stay up and she did and uh, I fell in love. And I always say that that night was sort of like my, my baptism in blood, if you will, because it opened my eyes up to the fact that these were a different kind of movie than the movies I was seeing at the multiplex or that my friends were talking about at school. And so then there became this like awareness that there was this other world of movies that felt a little forbidden and I wanted to see them all. And of course, that draw to the forbidden also kind of ties into a certain kind of queerness. And so as I, I, I went through my life and I started like digging into probably scarier movies than Killer Tomatoes and finding like my interest and, and desire to create, I also started seeing that parallel because a lot of the people I met along this journey were also queer and also interested in horror. Hi, I'm Brendan Haley, and uh, I am relatively newer to the world of queer horror. Brendan is an actor, producer, and filmmaker known for his work on the daytime Emmy-nominated series Eastsiders. But unlike Michael, he wasn't raised on horror. It's a world that, uh, I mean, we'll get into it in a little bit, but uh, Michael Roddy here has been a huge part of introducing me to the this wonderful, wonderful queer world uh, over the last couple of years. Michael and Brendan were both drawn to horror for the same reason. For them, it's about more than just the thrill you get from being scared. I think probably the most obvious thing that people look towards is A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. It has been touted as the gayest movie of all time. We need you, Jesse. If you're not familiar with the franchise by Wes Craven, Nightmare on Elm Street, it tells the story of Freddy Krueger, the spirit of a serial killer who wears a gloves with knives for fingers that he uses to kill his victims in their sleep. 
But what makes it the gayest movie of all time? Uh, because of these sort of overt uh, queer themes that you see where, uh, you know, the main character played by Mark Patton is is struggling with his identity and he's got this thing inside of him that he, he doesn't necessarily want to let out. And of course, through the lens of the fantastic, it's it's Freddy, this otherness. But the the allegory of the film reads very gay and a lot of people have picked up on it over the years, mostly because the character does go to a leather bar. There's a lot of like homoerotic themes, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting is while people focus their lens on Nightmare 2, they kind of neglect uh, the fact that the entirety of the Elm Street franchise is sort of queer because the first movie, Nancy, really is reaching out to the people around her and they don't listen to her. And so she has to draw on her own strength and what sets her apart, what makes her other to fight back and to survive. Of course, we know the queer things of Nightmare 2. Nightmare 3 is about drawing power from your chosen family, your found community. And this thread continues throughout the franchise where it's like there's this certain queerness that the characters who face Freddy as this sort of uh, nebulous monstrosity they themselves are other, and it's their otherness that helps them survive. And that in of itself is a queer narrative. And that's a huge example because Elm Street's one of the biggest franchises in history as far as horror goes. Another element of horror that appeals to the LGBTQ community is the concept of the final girl. You know, the character that's left after they killed off the popular cheerleader and the hunky jock. Well, gay men love strong women, right? But there's also an otherness to these female characters. They don't quite fit in with everyone else. It's why people, I think, love Sydney or Nancy so much, because there is something we understand as queer people. And I, I'm sure there are other movies that uh, we, can, we can reference, not just the major franchises, but like in the pop culture zeitgeist, those are the ones that we see most prevalently. That's the one we see every Halloween. And I think it's great that uh, there is that connection. We see it in diva worship. It's, you know, like the, the gays have been very out front of the free Britney movement. We, we love our divas. We love our strong women. We, we love our avatars on film, basically. And that's what the final girl sort of represents in the horror space. I love that you reference Sydney and Nancy. And of course, you go back to kind of the OG of the slasher cycle, who, Jamie Lee Curtis. Laurie Strode. And I think that a big, uh, a big uh, misnomer when talking about otherness and horror is people automatically assume you're talking about the monster. But the reality is, is otherness can be embodied in a lot of different ways. And in Halloween, Laurie, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is sort of a girl on the outside. She's looking at these other girls who, while they're her friends, they're popular, they're sexual, they're all these things that she wants to be and that she yearns to be, but she's kind of on the outside. And then when the night comes that she has to survive is what sets her apart that allows her to fight back. That's otherness. Lori is as other as Michael is in Halloween. And I think that's why, uh, you know, 40 years later, we're thrilled that Jamie Lee is still playing that character because really the movie is as much about her and our attachment to her as queer people, as audience goers, as it is to this faceless man who just kind of keeps showing up on Halloween. There's even a connection um, I've had a lot of conversations with recently uh, about Reagan in The Exorcist and that being, it, it's not something that I actually have thought of until recently, um, the idea that the possession is sort of through the lens of religion, a take on queer identity or uh, sexuality or freedom or all the different facets of that conversation, which personally, I think it's a great movie to begin with, but it gives 
the story a whole other depth and a whole other uh, villain, essentially. You know, we're always focusing on the devil inside of Reagan rather than maybe the priests are the bad guys. Going back to Nightmare on Elm Street, Michael has mentioned the otherness of Freddy Krueger, and it's not hard to see why. He's not the usual guy you pass on the street. But Michael says this persona that Robert England has taken on can be considered a form of drag. I think that it's important to know that drag can be many things. I, I, I know that because of shows like Drag Race or Dragula, um, there are viewers at home who have this sort of idea that drag is gender illusion or it's, you know, that this just sort of like one box thing. But drag is really about taking on a heightened person persona and, and, and really playing a personality up. Elvira is a drag queen. Uh, you know, she's a cis woman who plays another cis woman, but like... And her entire character of Elvira comes in It comes from the inspiration of drag queens of that time and, and the Bay Area scene. And we've talked about that before. Um, but like one could take that idea and place it on any slasher. Like Leatherface could be a drag queen or Michael Myers could be a drag queen. Sure, and but I think especially in the case of Freddy, because there's this complete and total embodiment, when you think about Freddy Krueger, you know intellectually that that's Robert England, the actor. But we don't talk about him as Robert England when we discuss the character. It's always Freddy. It's why in the 80s, Freddy Krueger hosted music videos on MTV. Freddy Krueger stopped by talk shows to talk to David Letterman. Or it was never Robert England. It was always Freddy. And Robert being a master performer, when he put on that Freddy drag, his whole persona changed. He changed the way he talked. He changed the way he walked. He changed his movements. He was very much the Ethel Merman of horror. There, everything's theatrical for uh, how Freddy presents himself. Doesn't Freddy also get paid higher than Robert? <laughs> Probably. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, I mean, Elvira gets paid higher than Cassandra does. So I, I think that it would uh, certainly track. And that's, that's true. I think that it's sort of like, if you want RuPaul to come to an event as RuPaul in a suit, it's going to be a different fee than RuPaul done up with the full face and gown and hair, you know? And uh, ultimately, horror and drag walk hand in hand because they're both art forms of heightened reality and using that heightened reality to critique something or expose something. So Freddy Krueger very much is a drag queen or a drag character, a drag monster, if you will, because it's taking that heightened persona and, and adopting it to be something more, to be something other, to make a statement. And and Freddy, even more so than any of the other slashers, is, is really quite draggy, you know, for that reason. Otherness is an extensive term. It describes anything that breaks the stereotypical norms of human society. And if we go back to the early years of horror, like with Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, horror has constantly challenged normativity. And I think what's really interesting is that there sort of seems to be this, this concept that this is a new idea, that horror is suddenly queer. But the reality is horror itself has always been queer. But for a period of time, the people who were kind of in charge or keeping the gate or whatever phrase that you want to use made it seem otherwise. But you, you mentioned Frankenstein. Uh, if you go back to before movies into sort of the true foundational horror uh, and look at gothic literature, uh, 
there was a novelist, uh, Sheridan Lafanu, who wrote a book called Carmilla, which is all about a, a lady vampire who preys on young maidens. And it was a very popular novel. And people kind of were drawn to the sapphic imagery. And maybe he thought he was saying something that was sort of anti-queer, but what people liked about it was the queerness. And in that actual, that book became so popular that Bram Stoker was a fan and was like, I also want to write a vampire novel and then creates Dracula. So you get the most famous vampire, possibly the most famous character in, in Western literature because of a lesbian vampire first. And you see this kind of like trend uh, that goes throughout. Frankenstein, when it was adapted for film, was was directed by one of the great gay filmmakers of, of the Universal Monster Cycle, James Whale. And everything in The Bride of Frankenstein has has queer themes. You know, on Frankenstein's wedding night, he leaves with another man and leaves his his bride alone on on their honeymoon. And it's sort of like, what are you supposed to infer from that? So yeah, these these foundational queer themes have been there all along. And then later on, we get into like the Hammer era of things with like uh, Dr. Jekyll, Sister Hyde, all that. You know, Dr. Jekyll, Sister Hyde, of course, uh, is a movie that I think a lot of trans horror scholars can speak better to than us as, as cis gay men. But it is about kind of gender and uh, gender identity and and how when he's Dr. Jekyll, he's a man. And when he's Sister Hyde, he's a woman. And there's a problematic version of that. But it's also a film that has been embraced by a lot of trans horror fans as well, too. Uh, but the fact that that Hammer even dared to make a movie about gender dysphoria in the 70s is, is still something that you weren't seeing outside of genre. So yeah, I think that's a really brilliant one to bring up. There's something about monster horror that is obviously queer, but people overlook this because the main characters are not human. Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt play lifelong partners in the film Interview with a Vampire, but it isn't perceived as queer because they're blood-sucking monsters, right? First and foremost, all vampires are queer, period, full stop. Like, there's no question. And anybody who hits back against that needs to understand that, of course, they're queer because vampires are not human. And for you to, to place the confines of human sexuality on something that isn't human doesn't make sense. Like, they're queer by definition of their attraction anyway because they aren't part of the human sort of, di you know, diaspora. And I think that what's great about Interview with a Vampire uh, is for a lot of years, for better or worse, it was kind of considered by Hollywood to be the number one box office earning gay film of all time, even though, as you said, it's not really an outwardly gay movie at all. So, uh, but I would also say, you know, that the most interesting thing about that movie is despite the vampires, despite everything, it's really about these two men who are trying to raise a daughter as their relationships falling apart. So it is pretty gay. I mean, like. When we come back, Michael and Brendan walk us through all the queer horror films you have to add to your watch list. Welcome back. Today we're chatting with Michael Verratti and Brendan Haley, two filmmakers and queer horror aficionados. So far, they've walked us through how films like Nightmare on Elm Street and Interview with a Vampire are not commercialized as queer despite their prominent LGBTQ themes. But what other movies also fit into this category? I would start with anything by uh, Mario Bava, uh, specifically Blood and Black Lace, that is tied with Killer Tomatoes as my favorite film. Uh, 
I always describe it as the Devil Wears Prada, but in the 60s and Italian fashion and murder and great intrigue. So uh, what's not to appeal to a a young queer person um, or any queer person? Well, I'm glad that you brought up Mario Bava because I think something that gets left out of queer conversations a lot, and I'm happy to jump in and and throw this out there, is, uh, is Italian horror's sort of championing of queer identity long before we see it stateside. Because uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, when Dario Argento started his kind of cycle of giallo films, uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Cat of Nine Tails, Four Flies in Grey Velvet, all of those movies feature queer characters. There's a character that goes to a drag bar while he's investigating a crime. There's a gay inspector. And all of these characters are presented quite positively in an era where otherwise we weren't seeing that. You know, Alfred Hitchcock was not putting queer people in his movies, or if he was, they were, you know, men in a dress killers, that like very transphobic, you know, representation. And to have this like master of Italian horror operating on this level of of uh, queer acceptance, even if some of his other politics were messy, is still something that that counts. And, you know, I, I don't know what it was because, uh, you know, Bava was quite good at that too. Um, well, you mentioned Argento and I, I would view Suspiria as a queer narrative, whether that's not widely acknowledged or, or not. In much the same way as we talked about vampires being queer entities, witches, and that allure to power, that allure to sexuality, that allure to freedom is something that is not necessarily viewed as uh, the hero or the protagonist in both film genres. I think even more so in the Suspiria remake that came out a few years ago, there's that whole sequence where Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton are seducing each other, like just from across a table. Just, I think... Which you and I have reenacted at m- many, many dinners. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, I think that the great thing about this is is there is sort of a grand tradition of, of queerness in horror movies. When looking at American films, Michael and Brendan say finding ones with queer themes is a lot easier than you think. Something like Jennifer's Body, of course, speaks to queer themes. Uh, or if you're a big fan of 80s horror, I would point you towards Prom Night 2, Hello, Mary Lou. It's a very, like, sapphic movie. Um, I think that if if you really are investigating this, this crossover in genre, it's definitely there. And I don't even think you have to look all that hard for it, you know? Would you say that that films like that are from like the 90s right we're talking about like the craft those films were intentionally queer or they just ended up that way with time um i think probably a bit of both what's really interesting is i got to uh do a uh a radio interview with um rachel true who, who plays rochelle in the craft a couple years ago and i've worked with her a few times since and she actually has spoken to this that because she is really the only person of color in the movie and also one of the only you know, marginalized community members in the community. She felt like it was her duty to sort of embody you know, that for everybody, the, the queerness, the otherness. And so she says that she had that in mind while she was making the film. And I, I can't imagine that uh, Feruza Balk who, who totally knows what she's doing. Like she's like 100% delivering this kind of like grand Guignol camp performance. I, I, I would not be surprised uh, if there was some, some consideration of, of 
this becoming an embraced queer film. But I think that the, the film's themes lend itself to that being embraced too. You know, that we are the weirdos, mister. That's, that's a rallying cry. Uh, so uh, I, I would say so, whether intentionally or not, but it feels intentional. Yeah, and I do feel like that's a film in particular where through the passage of time, the audience has attached itself more in a, in a queer light to that movie. Now, did that continue into like the early 2000s with the, like films like, the, I think it's called Covenant or The Covenant. But I mean, that when I watched that, I'm like, this is very gay, but it really was not packaged that way or sold that way. Sure. So The Covenant was made by Rennie Harlan, who I think a lot of people would know as the director of Die Hard 2, someone who decidedly does not make very gay films, right? Uh, although Rennie Harlan did direct uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which I consider to be uh, quite queer because of all the reasons I uh, mentioned earlier. Um, but The Covenant kind of seems to be in this grand tradition of of these movies that were made by the this uh, gay filmmaker, David Dakota, who really hit like a, a big stride during the blockbuster era where uh, blockbuster needed to get a lot of movies on shelves and, and they would buy a lot of these indie horror films. And David Dakota made these kind of like extremely homoerotic movies about like the new boy at school. And there's like a group of like sexy boy warlocks who like want to bring him into their circle. Uh, and then like, there's always like some sort of seance where they're in their underwear and his underwear are white because he's innocent and their underwear is black because you know, they're, they're bad boys. And he made a ton of these and gay people were like, oh, these are gay. And yet there was always like some sort of uh, way around the marketing that they didn't have to call them that. And I loved it because he sort of did exploitation cinema in the way that a lot of these men during the drive-in era did like these, these boobs movies. Like they knew what they were doing. He was like, all right, I'm taking the male gaze and, and putting it on boys and uh, let's see them try and stop me. And it, it, what's funny about that is he made a ton of those, the brotherhood voodoo Academy. If you, you were running movies during that time, you could have seen all of them. And then, so when the covenant came out, it was like, Oh, it's like Hollywood was like, we should try and make an expensive David Dakota movie. And it's strange because it is, those boys are really sexy, but like you said, it, there's a weirdness to it because it's both gay and not. And I think it's because the filmmaker was not in on the joke of what they were trying to do. Honestly. So they're like, okay, everyone get in your underwear and be very like buff, like be buff and mean. You're frat bros, you're frat bros. It's, no, it's totally not gay. Exactly. I was going to say, it was, I think the first time we saw Sebastian Stan, right? It was Sebastian Stan and Chase Crawford. Oh my God, that's right. From what we've heard so far about queer themes and horror films, it's all about reading between the lines. But queer cinema is growing, all that slowly, to the point where there are prominent LGBTQ characters in these stories. Again, not a lot, but they're there. So why is it we still have so few movies with authentic queer representation? It does go back to the gatekeepers. It goes to who's controlling the output. It's going to who approves movies, who uh, thinks uh, the money is going to be made and where and in what market. And we've seen this happen across a lot of uh, different demographics. Why are there still you know, less female filmmakers per capita in Hollywood than, you know, 
we still don't have an equal amount of women making movies. We still don't have an equal amount of people of color making movies. We still don't have an equal amount of queer people making movies because they still view these kind of films as a risk, which is kind of, well, not kind of, it is crazy, you know, because if you, if you tell stories for people, the people those stories are for will show up to them. But from those characters that we see, the way movies portray LGBTQ plus people is not great. Look at Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. He's a queer-coded serial killer who's obsessed with dressing like his victims by literally taking the skin off of their bodies. It makes for a scary character, but it puts queer identities under a bad light. And if the queer character isn't the villain, they're usually just there as monster bait. Michael calls this the barrier gaze trope where like a gay character is introduced only to die or the crazy cross-dressing killer like, uh, you know, Norman Bates or something. Uh, it, it, it was not great representation. And I think that luckily, because there are people who are fighting for visibility and the, the conversation is shifting and we're seeing more out filmmakers and queer filmmakers and horror making movies like Knife Plus Heart or Rift and, uh, you know, these movies that, that, champion queer causes, the conversation is changing. But I also think that we have to not stop talking about those old movies too, because that's the only way we can learn. And, you know, I think there is like this nouveau idea that like, well, this was problematic. So we just strike it from the record. And I'm like, no, we have to keep talking about it. Like, yes, sleepaway camp is transphobic in many ways, but I also know trans people who really like that movie because they have embraced the problematic fave because of the conversation or like I, I you know you bring up nightmare 2 the reality is is that if even though we as gay men love to celebrate that movie what people rarely mention is the whole arc of the movie is sort of defeating his gayness it isn't a positive outcome in the film we like all the camp parts that make it gay, but no one ever wants to talk about the last 10 minutes where it's basically like the love of a good woman will drive Freddie out of you and you don't get to be queer anymore. That's a problem. And that's a very, that's a repeating theme, especially back in the 80s and 90s, but still today we see that. Exactly. So, but it's like, we need to talk about it so we can make not just horror, but all stories better and more inclusive and smarter. And uh, that doesn't mean we have to strike what's come from the record or that we can't enjoy what's come before. I mean, there are movies that I grew up loving that came during that weird cult exploitation midnight movie era where, yeah, they're not all PC. And I think we can look at it through the lens of time and be like, okay, I still enjoy this, but I also know that we've grown because that's what art should be. It should always be about growth and forward momentum. as cancel culture and sort of shifting that narrative over to putting these characters and these people in the protagonist seat or the, the seat of the hero. One example is Netflix's recent horror trilogy, Fear Street, based on Arlstein's novels. The films feature a lesbian romance at the forefront. They're good movies, but at the end of the day, there aren't a lot of prominent queer characters in Hollywood, and the ones we do have aren't well executed. By putting them in that place where, turn, where essentially we're just taking these characters, not always, but sometimes taking these characters and putting the same narrative as a straight character that we've had for years and years and years. 
and that's their journey. Not always, but like it, it depends on the movie, I think. And, you know, I think the thing too about tropes is is we live in a kind of a postmodern meta society with all of our media. Our, our media has become very referential. So I think that even if tropes are employed these days, um, we know we know them, which makes a difference. Uh, I'm not saying they're all good and I'm not saying they're all bad and I'm not saying there are some that we couldn't do without or that, you know, that they're beating a dead horse. Uh, but I think there's a lot more savvy to it now. Um, or at least there should be, really is the correct answer. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely uh, always the hope is to tell more stories that focus on the queer perspective or different facets of that. Brendan and Michael both bring authentic representation to the queer horror genre through their projects. For Brendan, it's through his two radio shows, It Listens from the Radio and The Boulet Brothers' Dragula. They focus on an alternate timeline in the 1950s and the soon-to-come third and fourth season of It Listens, the 1980s. Uh, they focus on an alternate timeline where queer people are just out. They are part of they are part of society, and that's not necessarily. Uh, there's no difference there. Some stories do differ. I think Michael actually wrote a really fantastic Halloween episode for It Listens last year that is all about um, the queer perspective and uh, these two boys in Texas who are watching a movie and they are still in the closet and they're trying to survive the zombie apocalypse. And and Eerie Earful sort of does a similar thing, uh, but uh, I, I, I always have an affinity for Michael's episode because of that storyline in particular. As for Michael, he's working as a writer, director, and producer, and says all his work explores the intersection of identity and horror. And I've been very lucky that I've been able to do it. All of my short films, in some capacity, explore uh, nuances and themes within our community that I don't feel like I'm seeing in horror. And luckily, I've found producers and become a producer myself to make these things happen. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I work with a lot of drag performers, and that's been a lot of my trajectory. Michael also collaborates with Peaches Christ, a filmmaker, actor, and underground drag performer. They co-host a show called Midnight Mass, which explores a different cult film each episode. And of course, when we do these uh things together, they're inherently queer because it's who we are. And getting to be a writer and director on a show like Dragula, which celebrates queer performers in a horror space, these are all like, you know, I get to see this all the time and I get to work in it all the time and I feel very lucky. But I am also a working writer in the industry where I work for a lot of TV networks and studios. And I see also how much farther we have to go, how there's a fight that always has to be had. There is always a conversation that needs to be pushed. So it's like, it is true that we as independent creators have to keep forcing those conversations and keep creating the things that we wanna see because by making the things that bring the audience, that's what's going to get the, you know, quote unquote mainstream to realize that there's value in these stories and to start making it themselves. Michael says he's usually bringing queer ideas to brainstorming meetings because even if it doesn't end up in the final project, at least it sparked a conversation. And sometimes you can get those things through. And uh, 
that's it. It's just write the stories you want to see, make the art you want to see. And I do come from a background where it's like, if you don't have $500 to make a movie, make it for five because someone still needs to see it. You know, that's that's where I, I think it begins. And uh, we need that art out in the world to make it. I don't know if you're equally passionate, but if you go through your IMDb, a lot of your credits are writing Christmas movies for networks like Hallmark. Right. How, <laughs> how did that, how do you go from like, I need gay horror, blood, guts, holidays? You know what's interesting is I think that people would be surprised to discover is there's not as much of a uh, divide in those as, as you would think. Um, because I got my first uh, Christmas movie because of, of the indie horror films that I wrote. Um, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I had made a, a number of uh, indie horror films in, on uh, the East Coast with a variety of really cool regional directors. And I moved here because I wanted to keep working. And it, there was a producer who regularly makes these Lifetime Christmas movies. And he was a fan of some of the work that I did. And they had this lineup of films where they had sold like five movies to the network and they only actually had four. And so they needed a movie made quickly. And he was like, can you make, can you write a Christmas movie for us uh, at a certain budget level and at a certain timestamp? And knowing that that's kind of how indie horror is made. And I was like, this is cool. I've never thought that I would do this, but sure, why not? Challenge accepted. And that first movie was a movie called A Christmas Reunion starring Denise Richards. Uh, and uh, it's all about a Christmas cookie contest and it did well. And so then the next Christmas they asked me to write another and another one. Michael discovered he wasn't the only horror movie buff writing Christmas stories. A lot of filmmakers and writers who do horror also do Christmas. There's this like weird kind of like community of us who kind of do both. And we've we've talked about it and we've also, I think there is a curiosity to it. And we've all been interviewed for a couple different publications about this, this exact crossover. And I think what we've all landed on is the reason it works is they're all cult movies in their own way. You know, the audiences are equally devoted and very ravenous for these films. And much like in Scream, where there are rules of horror movies, there are rules of Christmas movies that the Christmas audience like, you know, waits for. And so we we kind of view them as, as two sides of the same coin. And I'm sure Hallmark wouldn't be thrilled uh, to know that uh, I'm saying that their movies are the, the same as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And of course they're not, but like that's this, you know, you, you approach a movie with a certain kind of knowledge of what the audience wants and what the expectations are. And there's a little something cult about that. And so I think that's why we get it. And they're fun, they are. If you're not ready for Christmas music yet, and you're holding on to the Halloween season, you can check out Brendan's new album, Eerie Earfuls. Eerie Earfuls is a uh, Halloween ambience and original music album, uh, very much inspired by 1960s uh, Halloween sounds albums. And it's something I've wanted to do for a long time, and it's finally, uh, finally coming out. And Michael is a wonderful skeleton MC on it. <laughs> That's too kind. I, I have to say that I have been able to listen to Brendan's Eerie Earfuls album, and it is amazing. It is one of these very cool 
uh, nostalgia throwbacks. I think you did amazing work, and I think people who love Halloween and that kind of warm and, and cozy Halloween feeling are going to really like it quite a bit. And so I'm excited for people to hear it. Thank you. Um, as for me, as I mentioned, yes, uh, the new season of the Boulay Brothers Dragula will be premiering on October 19th on Shudder. I directed all of the intros and all of the death scenes, or most of the death scenes. Uh, and so uh, people who are familiar with previous seasons can come back to see our brand of mayhem. I also am in a docu-series that's debuting on Shudder called uh, Behind the Monsters, and every week they talk about a different popular culture monster and sort of how they uh, uh, influence the zeitgeist. So it's kind of sort of what we did a little bit in this conversation. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Then follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride and tune in weekly for new episodes. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and subscribe for more stories from amazing queer people. If you'd like to connect with me, you can follow me everywhere at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, Ryan Tillotson, Caitlin McDaniel, and Brandon Marlowe. Edited by Silvana Alcala and Daniel Ferreira. Sound mixing by Silvana Alcala. I think once you once you go back and put on like a queer lens and you look through, you're like, oh, this is so, so queer.